Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, we have a very special guest. He is a Hall of Fame journalist and broadcaster. Uh, You've seen and heard him on every episode of The Last Dance so far, and he's taking some time out of his very busy schedule to share his thoughts with all of us. And he's coming right up. But first... Darlene, let's run it. Buckets, Boards and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Thanks, Darlene. David Aldridge is a native of the DMV and is editor-in-chief of The Athletic DC. He has worked for more than 30 years covering the NBA and other sports for Turner, ESPN, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Washington Post. In 2016, he received the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, and he also received the Legacy Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. Welcome to the show, DA. (laughs) Monica, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We're so pumped that you can make some time um, to do this for us. All right. So, yes, we've got this whole pandemic thing going on. We definitely want to know how your family's doing. But first, we've got to start at The Last Dance, a place where we are so pleased to see your presence uh, so far through all six episodes. Um, How many hours of interviews did you do for that show? Uh, It was about, I'm going to say it was about two and a half hours, I think, when it was all said and done. they came to D.C. last last fall sometime. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was last fall and um, met them at a hotel here. And um, I thought it was, you know, I actually thought, you know, I was, I think I was one of the last interviews they did. So I thought it was going to be like, you know, they were going to ask me like a half hour's worth of questions to just fill in the blanks of some things they, they didn't have sound for, which was fine with me. I didn't mind that. But um you know, they really went in depth. They really wanted a lot of detail about, about you know, particular seasons and particular games. And so it was, uh, it was, uh, it was nice to do. It was good to do. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be on as much as I've been on so far, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, happy to, uh, happy to help them out. Um, I think everybody who's followed the league knows the kind of urban legend of all the, all the film that, uh, NBA Entertainment shot that last year, and I know guys that work for NBAE that have, you know, lamented that 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 film would never see the light of day, and they were they really wanted to have some place to show it, and it's gone through a lot of iterations over the years, and I'm just glad they finally figured out a way to to do it and to uh, let people see some get some real behind the scenes footage that that nobody else would have seen otherwise. Um, so in 98, you were with who? I was with ESPN in 98. Okay, got it. So you, so obviously you were present for the ride. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
I was in a lot of games that year, yeah. I was in Chicago a lot that year. <laughs> what? So you know how the saying goes when you're talking with your aunts, uncles, whatever. At, over yeah, time. Yeah, people. It's okay. Yeah, I didn't get that here. Okay, so we have this notion that, like, legend grows, right? Um, mm -hmm. This is a really interesting DA to, to watch, and particularly after episode six, where we divulge into the Republicans buy sneakers to comment. But we've had yeah. this crowd who has argued that Mike is on defense. We had that piece in the New York Times and that he's defending his legacy against LeBron, which I think is kind of asinine personally, but he is an elite <laughs> competitor. Then we get into this piece of Mike and whether or not he should or should not have been an activist. Do you, do you make anything of the timing of this thing coming out? Um, you know, I think if it, it would have come out, I mean, there would have been this debate at any point you know, mm -hmm. if whenever he decided to cooperate and go on the record about, you know, Republicans by sneakers too and, and all that, what whatever he said would be dissected. Um, and look, you know, going back before 98, I mean, there were always people who were saying that Mike needed to do more, needed to be out front, needed to be a, uh, a, a public advocate for causes beyond basketball, um, needed to speak out, you know, and so going back to Harvey Gantt, you know, in 1990, uh, there was all kinds of talk. There was always talk about that. Um, you know, at the time, I kind of shared that view, Monica, I'll be honest. I kind of thought, well, you know, he's Michael Jordan. What, what could they do to him? You know, if he speaks out on something, it's not like they're going to take his shoe contract away. You know, and so I kind of, I certainly shared that view. But what happens is that as you get older, <clears throat> you know, and I say this is as somebody that, that was there for a lot of it, um, you know, you, you, your, your worldview changes a little bit. And, you know, I have come to accept the fact that everybody can't be what you want them to be. You know, I mean, you just can't, you can't make people live life the way you want them to live life. You know what I mean? So um, Mike does things that nobody knows about. And I kind of respect that because I, I was raised with that whole notion that you know, if you do something nice for somebody, you, you don't call a press conference to tell everybody about it. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. You know what I mean? So, um, and so I never, so I always respect people who do things for people and don't talk about it, don't post videos about it and pump their chest and say, look at me, look at all the stuff I'm doing for my community. Um, and so Mike has, you know, I know Mike's, you know, helped put people through school and do a lot of things, done a lot of things like that, that, that don't get any publicity or any attention at all. Um, he's just not. He's just not someone who who spends a lot of time on those kinds of issues. At least he wasn't when he was playing. You know, he was kind of hyper focused on playing and competing. And you can criticize him for that. He's you know everybody's fair game, but that's who that's how he was wired, and it wasn't going to change. So what what. I guess what would the point of arguing about it be? You know, he's not going to do it. He doesn't want to do it. Um, and Craig Hodges said it, he did an interview with The Guardian in 2017 where he said that, you know, he doesn't think Mike's a bad person. He just thinks Mike doesn't, just doesn't think about these social issues very often, or at least he didn't then, you know. Um, and that's kind of where I am on it. I think you have to let people be. You know, I wrote this piece for The Athletic yesterday um, where I said, you know, there's a reason why Ali and Bill Russell were Ali and Bill Russell, right. you know, because everybody, everybody wouldn't do what they did. Everybody wouldn't take the stands that they took and make the sacrifices that they made, 
you know, it's a, it's a heavy, it's a heavy thing to ask somebody to do who's a professional athlete. I mean, they have to be incredibly secure in them, in themselves um, to do it. So I, I, you know, I, I, I guess I would just say, you know, I let people do what they feel comfortable doing. Um, You know, I'm happy that guys like LeBron today and guys like Colin Kaepernick are able to take these kinds of stands, you know, these political stands that cost them, in Kaepernick's case, cost him his career, essentially. Um, In LeBron's case, you know, certainly cost him a lot of goodwill. I don't know if it cost him any endorsements, per se, but, you know, there's always people that are going to argue and, you know, shut up and dribble the crowd and all that. Um, You know, so I respect that. And somebody, I think it was Jesse Washington in the undefeated, made this very good point the other day where he said, you've got to give Jordan credit for creating the environment in which somebody like LeBron James could thrive. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it was Mike, you know, you know, black people didn't get, black athletes didn't get endorsement deals until Michael Jordan came along. Not on, not on the regular, you know, it wasn't, it was not a given that, you know, someone like a Michael Jordan would, would advertise uh, for Fortune 500 companies, you know, and so while you may disagree with Jordan not being political, it was his very presence that made it possible for someone like LeBron to also be a pitch man and then have the platform to have a social conscience as well. Man, yeah, there, there's, DA, there's so much to dissect there. And I love being able to have this conversation with you because you are someone who is prominent as a mentor and support in the NABJ crowd. And obviously your career speaks for itself. But you mentioned him, and I gotta be honest, when I think I saw Jamel tweet about it, she's like, this would, mm-hmm. would have been a great time to discuss Craig Hodges. I was nine in 1998, wasn't exactly locked into the NBA. And so I had to go and do my research. Um, yeah. So two questions there. Really quickly, can you just kind of give us the Craig Hodges deal as you remember it going down? And then do you think that that's a piece that's missing from the documentary? Well, I mean, Craig was a was an outstanding shooter, um, you know, one of the best three-point shooters in the league at the time. He had won the three-point shooting contest of either two years in a row or two years out of three. It's hard to remember now. <laughs> you know, you start forgetting things as you get older. Um, <laughs> but was a, was a great shooter and was on, you know, the, the first three-peat was on at least two of those teams. I don't think he was on the third one, but the first two, he was, he was a part of those teams. Um, you know, but Craig was – one of the, one of, frankly, one of the few athletes at that time in the NBA that really was talking about social issues, was really talking about, you know, things off of the floor, was talking about, uh, you know, was not a supporter of the first Gulf War in 1991, where the whole country kind of got behind, you know, Bush 41 and, you know, made it all about, you know, jingoism in America, yeah, and all that sort of thing. Um, and Craig was one of the few people that was speaking out against it. Um, when the Bulls went to the White House after the first uh, championship in 1991, Craig showed up wearing full African garb, had a dashiki on, had the kufi on, and hand-delivered a, a letter to President Bush in which he basically admonished the president for not doing enough for the, for the black community in the, in the United States um, and said, you have to do more. And so Craig was very outspoken about that. He wanted Michael to be outspoken about things that were going on, both both around the country and in Chicago, um, you know, pushed him to do it. But Michael told him, you know, he just didn't feel comfortable doing it. 
And what happened as a result after the 90, I think it was the 92 season, um, Craig was a free agent. He was 31 years old. He was in great shape. He could have easily, I think, played another four or five years in the NBA. You know, what he did, he was a three-point specialist. You know, he wasn't getting banged around a lot in the paint. Um, So there was no reason he couldn't keep playing. He never played again. He never played another minute in the NBA. Nobody signed him. And he believes, and I think with some justification, that his political views get him blackballed. And so that is something that he has, um, you know, not shied away from. Um, you know, Craig says things with, with the way I think you should say them. He does not take – he doesn't say things with malice. He just says them matter-of-factly, you know, and that's what he believes. And he's coaching in, uh, in Chicago at, a, I think, his alma mater. It's high school, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but never played or coached in the NBA again, you know, and um, it's unfortunate, but that's kind of one of the, you know, side issues with regard to to Jordan. Should it be part of the last dance? I mean, you could certainly make an argument that it should um, because, you know, Craig certainly feels like he paid a price for speaking out. But again, it's not like Craig is holding, Mike taking Michael to task for not speaking out. He's just saying he didn't. And here's what he told me about why he didn't. And, uh, you know, and he accepts that, you know, and maybe other people would disagree with that. But I would just say, if you're asking me my opinion, I don't know that it necessarily has to be part of the, of the documentary. Because the documentary is about Michael Jordan. I mean, let's be honest. That's what it's about, you know. So, um, but if they had put it in, I would, have certainly, I would have certainly agreed with it and thought that it was relevant. Um, but is it a deal breaker for me if it's not in? I can't say that it is. Hey, DA, it's Bruce. Um, one of the things that's been kind of cool about it, about this whole documentary, is that because sports, the sports world is at a standstill right now, this has been like the major thing in sports. So it's allowed some of the lesser known stories like the Craig Hodges and like some of the behind the scenes tension with the Bulls management versus the Bulls players back in that era to be examined and to be discussed. And, you know, airing that stuff out, I think, has been, you know, very educational for a lot of people. Are there any stories that, I mean, I'm sure we're going to see much more of you over the final four episodes. Are there any stories that you wanted to share that weren't really questions that they asked you about those Bulls teams? Um... I mean, it's hard. I can't say I can't think of anything offhand. I we may or may not have talked about Le Bradford Smith. I mean, I don't know if that's going to come up in the in the documentary. I thought I think I talked to them about that. Um, no, I mean, you know, I can't think of a of anything. I mean, that was just an example of Michael just basically lying and making something up to motivate himself to play. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything that I volunteered to them um, that they didn't ask me about. And it's, I can't recall anything specific, uh, Bruce. I mean, we, again, we talked for a couple of hours about a lot of different things. Um, we certainly, you know, uh, you know, we certainly talked a lot about Krauss. I mean, they wanted to know a lot about Jerry. And I, I'll say this, I do think, and I, and I hope, you know, it came across, I, I feel like Jerry kind of is getting, you know, the short end of this thing from a PR standpoint, number, you know, he's not here to defend himself. He passed away in 2017. He's not physically here to defend himself, you know, and I just think that from that standpoint, it's kind of unfair to kind of 
you know, say these things about him, make these assertions about him without someone that knew Jerry being able to speak on his behalf. And I don't know if they reached out to, you know, Jim Stack or some of the other people that, that were that were hired by Jerry or, or worked with Jerry over a number of years. I wrote a piece when I was at Turner, I wrote a piece um, after uh, Jerry got in the hall of fame about how I thought Jerry was kind of unappreciated and misconstrued and put in an impossible position because he was basically there to be the bad guy. You know, he was the guy that had to say no to Michael. He's the guy that when Michael wanted to trade for Walter Davis and do some of the other moves that, that he wanted to make, Jerry Krause was the guy that had to say no to him. And, you know, Jerry couldn't win that fight. Michael is the star, star of stars in the NBA. You know, he's, he's this incredibly charismatic, great player. Jerry is this overweight, frumpy guy, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't communicate well, that, you know, that doesn't really like the media and can't really uh, give his side of it in, a, in an articulate way. And so I just thought it was kind of it was kind of an unfair fight, you know, because he can't possibly compete with Michael Jordan from a charisma standpoint, from a soundbite standpoint, you know, all of those things. And so that's where I thought it was kind of unfair to kind of, you know, just continue to take shots at Krause, who's an easy target and can't defend himself. So I I wanted to make that um, clear to them, I think, in the course of our discussions that I just and, and I'm. I'm no, I mean, it wasn't like Jerry and I were friends. We weren't, I didn't have any relationship with him. Um, but every time I would interview him, he was always cordial. I mean, he was always available and answered the questions that I asked him, um, but never was, um, you know, he never volunteered any information to me or anything like that. He just wasn't, just wasn't how he was wired. He had a very, very deep distrust of the media and, you know, thought that the media was, someone to, you know, an entity to be avoided uh, at all costs. So, but I still, I still, you know, just think there's an elemental unfairness to, you know, him being the butt of the jokes and always kind of being blamed for breaking the team up. There were a lot of reasons that that team broke up. Now, he was certainly one of the big ones, but he wasn't the only one. He's a tragic figure in so many ways. I mean, including the fact that when he finally was, uh, elected and inducted into the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame. He had already passed away, so he didn't even have a, his moment in the sun to, to sort of, you know, bask in the, in the accomplishments that he had. And, and another reason I think he's a tragic figure, I mean, we all have bosses, right? All of us report to somebody. And mm-hmm. his, his boss wasn't such a great guy either. And, and, you know, I think he deflected a lot of the heat from Jerry Reinsdorf. Uh, and, again, he was made the whipping boy for, for, you know, all of the, all of, you know, even Reinsdorf in the show said, well, you know, I kind of advise Scotty Pippen, maybe you shouldn't sign this contract. Well, yeah, you could have also <laughs> ripped it up after all he did for your franchise, but you really didn't. So Jerry Krause took all the abuse for that. Well, there's no, there's no question. And I've said this often that I thought, you know, part of Jerry Krause's job was to take crap for Jerry Reinsdorf, you know, because, you know, Reinsdorf was the one that, that, that held out, you know, until the last possible moment to, to pay Jordan. I mean, remember, Michael Jordan, you know, 10 years into his career was making $3.5 million a year. You know, Michael Jordan we're talking about here, you know. And, and, and reluctantly, grudgingly, Jerry Reinsdorf finally 
gave him the two balloon payments at the end of his career. He gave him 30 million and then 33 million his final year in Chicago. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Jerry Krause was the guy that had to hold the line, not only on, on player salaries, but also on Phil Jackson's salary. You know, Phil wanted to be paid what the other coaches were starting to get paid. Now I'm not, I'm trying to remember exactly. It probably was a few years ago, but you know, George Carl wound up getting 7 million a year from the Bucks when he signed with them, and you know uh, Larry Brown was getting you know five six million a year, and there was it was just that was when uh, coaches contracts went through the roof, and Phil wanted that kind of deal, and and again Jerry Krause was the guy that had to say no to him. Now I I would say that Jerry was also again not terribly diplomatic in how he went about doing those things. Um, and so he kind of rubbed Phil the wrong way and how he approached it and handled it. And, you know, some of the things that, that he did and said while Phil was there led to an animosity between the two. And Phil, as all coaches do, needing something to motivate his team, to bring his team together, found an easy target in Jerry Krause. You know, and I'm I'm not – you know, I'm not uh, critical of Phil for doing that. That's what coaches do. You know, they have to find a way to get their guys ready to play and, and find something for them to rally around. It's unfortunate for Krause that, that he was the, the subject of it that year. But coaches will, find, will look for that, and it was an easy target because so many people dislike Jerry Krause to begin with. Hey, this actually – Brings me to, I hope this is probably going to be our last question on the last dance. And then we want to ask you a couple of things about present day and trying to get back on track. But sure. it is no secret that Jordan's media company has their hand on this documentary in partnership with ESPN and Netflix. Mm -hmm. I, but you are a career journalist. I, like, I don't take any issue with it on a base level because I think so many guys now have their hands in media companies and history is told by those who have power and that was the deal that MJ cut to get the footage done. Cool, so be it. But do you think... I've heard people, some folks, my dad, I won't just say some folks, call this thing an <laughs> infomercial for Jordan. Do you feel <laughs> that it is slanted? Well, of course it's slanted. <laughs> like i don't to me it's like oh wow great but you guys lived it you know real time yeah no i mean look history's written by the winning side okay right. i mean that's just reality you know that's life um and uh, you know it's funny there's been i just did a radio show this morning in detroit and of course they're like well the piss you know they slammed the pistons and they made the Look, there was a whole documentary done in the Pistons called Bad Boys. There was a 30 yeah. for 30. That was history is told by the Pistons. You know, I mean, that's what you do. That's yeah. what these things are. These are histories according to the people that are in them. Like, what, what, what do you think? What, what do you think? Edward R. Murrow is going to come, out, come back and do a documentary on Michael Jordan? <laughs> you know, it's not, gonna, it's not happening. You know, I mean, right. that's not how this works. You know, we all are aware that this is a Michael Jordan production. You know, that he had to approve doing this documentary. Now, I don't know if he had script approval. I don't know. He may have. Um, do I feel, do I wish that someone, you know, could do a kind of clinical, you know, dispassionate, quote unquote, objective documentary on Michael Jordan? Sure. Good luck getting him in the chair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, 
know, so, I mean, that's just not going to happen probably. I mean, it's just, you know, so, you know, I think, I, I like to think that adult people who are watching this can make whatever judgments they want to make about whether this is a fair or not documentary um, with with minimal guidance from, from me or anybody else. I mean, you know, I don't, they didn't make a secret of it. It's not like some reporter dis discovered that, you know, Michael Jordan controlled the production of this thing, you know. So, um, you know, it would be great for somebody to do, to have the, ability to do a, a real kind of, you know, 60 minutes type of documentary on, on them. Um, I just don't think you're going to get much cooperation from them. Uh, and then, then it becomes a documentary with no cooperation from Michael Jordan, with no comment from Michael Jordan. Now, some people may say that that's better. Maybe it is, but that's not, you weren't going to get him in the chair. And I think most people would say that some of the stuff that you have heard him say and the, and the memes that have already come out in the first six episodes based on him reacting to things that, that, that other people said and him going on the record with some things, I think were, are worth the cost of his group having control of, of the documentary. I mean, that's, that's where, and I say that if somebody's in the documentary, so you can dismiss my view as somebody that's in it. It's fine if you, if you um, feel that way. I just feel like half a loaf is better than no loaf to me. DA, you've been uh, really generous with your time. We're hoping we can steal a few more minutes with you. But I wanted to ask you, um, do you think it's realistic? Uh, let, 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 we're going to kind of move it now into the current day. Do you feel like it's realistic for the NBA to resume the season at some point? Well, look, I have a lot of reservations about that for a lot of different reasons. Um, I don't think you know, any sports league is essential. Uh, I just don't. I don't, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, I don't think playing games is essential. Is it something that we all want? Of course we all want it. Of course we all want sports to resume. But not at the cost of someone getting sick or dying. You know, I don't want that. I don't need to be covering the finals that badly. You know what I mean? And I think most reasonable people would agree with that. So, um, but having said that, I know that the players in the main, certainly the Players Association, wants to resume playing. The league in the main wants to resume playing. And usually when the league and the players agree on something, that something gets done. So I, I have no real doubt in my mind that they will resume the season at some point in the coming uh, probably two to two and a half months. It might be late June or early July before they start, but they will start. Um, whether it's, you know, all 30 teams or, or just going straight to the playoffs, I think it's still up in the air. But I do think that they will continue playing because there is there is a desire on all, on both sides to have a playoffs and to have a champion this year. So if that's the case, then it's probably going to happen in some form or fashion. So if they do resume playing and it's just with a kind of a minimal support staff of, you know, quote unquote, essential personnel to stage the games, do you think it can be anything close to as good as it would be if there were fans attending the game? Well, I mean, no, but I mean, you know, we all want fans in the 
to, to go to games because they, I think they certainly add to the, the, the quality of, of a broadcast. They add to the, the environment, the, the intensity at a certain level. Um, but again, I don't think it's worth the cost of a fan getting sick, you know, to have them in, in proximity to one another um, just so that we can have some sort of shared experience, you know? So um, I would say it's, I, I don't want any, again, I don't want anybody to get sick for my entertainment. You know, I don't think anybody should want that. Right. So um, we should be able to, and I think the reality is we're going to, have a postseason with no fans. I just don't know how you could possibly reintroduce fans to a stadium environment anytime in the next several months. And again, I'll, I, I always go back to what Tony Fauci says. It's the, the virus will determine when we go back to normal, not people. You know what I mean? So um, we can't pretend like we have control over this thing because we don't. And from, from that standpoint, the, the safe call is to mitigate as much risk as you can, and that means no fans. So you're coming up in another few months on your second anniversary as the uh, editor-in-chief of The Athletic D.C. And, you know, since you've been there, the Nationals have won the World Series, the Mystics have won the WNBA championship. Is D.C. becoming like the city of champions ever since you took over The Athletic D.C.? We'll give you your credit, D.A. <laughs> I, th- I think the correlation is unmistakable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's been great. And it's part of why I, I wanted to take this job, um, because I, I remember, you know, during the, during the playoffs in 2018, I was still with Turner, and we were, you know, on the road. And I, I was watching the Capitals, and I'm – I'm not going to pretend like I'm the biggest hockey fan in the world, but I was watching, you know, you watch the games because you're sitting in your room. Um, and, you know, I started watching all the games back in D.C. and going, wow, that looks like that. It really looks like they're having a good time out there. You know, the, it was, there was all kinds of crowds, both inside the arena and outside, you know, make cheering and a lot of young people with a lot of diversity, which surprised me, frankly, um, you know, and so I was like, wow, that's, that looks kind of cool. Then, you know, that people in DC seem to really be, you know, getting into the cats being making this run in the playoffs. And I just remember thinking that, you know, at some point in my life, I would like to be back in my hometown when the, when the hometown team is doing something good in the in, in sports, you know, because, Obviously, the, the the Wizards had have struggled, to, you know, to kind of get going again with all the injuries, and you know, the football team's been awful for a long time and hasn't been very good. So um, <clears throat> to watch the Capitals win the Stanley Cup was kind of cool. And that, so when this opportunity came up, I said, you know, I, I reminded myself that, you know, you're the one that said you wanted to do this. You wanted to be around when fun stuff happened in D.C. again. Well. This is the chance to do that. Why don't you think about it? And the more I thought about it, I, I was like, you know, I, this is, I need to think, I need to do this. I really think I need to do this. So, um, yeah, and then I got, you know, last year I got to go to the World Series, which was awesome. You know, it was great. Going back and forth between D.C. and Houston and watching the seven games play out, it was awesome. It was great fun. Um, so, to, to be part of that and to, to see that happen, you know, in front of you was, was amazing. So I, 
I'm very happy. I'm, I, you know, I miss my Turner people greatly. It was, it was a great place to work. I loved being there for 14 years. I didn't leave because of anything they did. Um, it was a combination of having this great opportunity to cover sports in D.C. and being around my family a little bit more. Now, I didn't realize I'd be with them for the last six weeks. But, <laughs> no. but uh, hey, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. So um, it's, um, it's been great, and I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously. All right, DA, so this is, this is it. We're going to get you out of here. But you mentioned amongst those championships or titles that you got to take in, we saw one another at um, the Sports and Entertainment Arena as the yeah. Mystic shut it down, uh, WNBA yeah. champion. Um, just really quickly, I remember Kathy Engelbert saying, I want to say three weeks ago now, I know it was right before the draft, she felt like the WNBA was in a unique position in terms of how they could respond to this pandemic. Um, if there's a way that the W figures it out, would it be something that you would think the NBA might mirror or do you imagine that they're probably working together on how to figure this out? Um, good question. I mean, I, my suspicion is that, you know, I think all the leagues are working together, right? I think everybody is trying to share best practices at this point because nobody, there's no playbook for this, right? There's no league that has the playbook on how to respond to this. So any anybody's good idea is is worth advocating for, right? So um, so I certainly think if the WNBA comes up with a a you know kind of really all encompassing, meaningful, um, effective way for its players and teams to kind of um, be part of their communities and, and as a league comes up with something that um, makes sense and 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 is repeatable in the NBA or any sports league. I don't think anybody is going to, you know, try to have a monopoly on a good idea. And I certainly don't think anybody is going to be unwilling to share a good idea. So I, I'm guessing that, that, um, the, that the NBA and WNBA will certainly work together and try and figure out a, a way to, you know, come up with good ideas that certainly make sense. Um, you know, I, I, I'd love the, the Zoom with, with Sue Bird and, and, uh, you know. and Tarasi and uh -huh. those guys. That was, that was awesome. That was great. <laughs> you know, so things like that, 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 that are real and can kind of engage the, the fans of, of sports and of that league are, are well worth doing and well worth repeating. 100% DA. Well, thank you so much for making time. We love your perspective. Maybe down the road we can get you to uh, hop back on with us because obviously you've got a wealth of knowledge and we look forward to seeing you more in the last dance well i appreciate all of those very kind words and i'll be happy to come back on anytime thank you for having me that was dope thanks so much to the great david aldridge the editor-in-chief of the athletic dc doing some really great content there with his staff in addition to being a hall of fame writer and broadcaster he is definitely a trailblazer a role model, and a cherished friend indeed. Um, DA has just been great. I first met him through NABJ, and he's always willing to encourage and offer advice. Thanks also to my fantastic sidekick and co-host <laughs> and producer, Bruce Bernstein, who is also known DA since 1996. They go way back into the vaults of ESPN. And of course, to our fantastic editor, Ben Wolfen. Big shout out to him. We couldn't do it without him. We are still rolling with our five weekly shows here at Pure Hoops Media. 
This week, the Mike Wise Show has legendary coach George Carl, who talks about Michael Jordan and so much more. The story Sam Perkins tells about George Carl is laugh out loud funny. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams has a new show every Tuesday. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto and Aaron drops every Wednesday. The Pure Hoops podcast on Friday is co-hosted by Bulls OG BJ Armstrong, who you've seen in The Last Dance, and our guy Eric Newman. And of course, I'm back on Thursdays with buckets, boards, and blocks. Please, folks, remember all of the doctors, nurses, first responders, grocery workers, and support staffers who are helping the sick and the healthy get through this difficult time. We just cannot thank them enough. Please continue to practice social distancing, wash your hands, and pray for wisdom for our leaders. And please, just just, just please do not drink or inject Lysol, Clorox, Drano, Mr. Clean, or Fabuloso, although I know that purple shade can be tantalizing, or any other household cleaning products. But I'm sure you already do that. We're just trying to put a smile on your face. Treat everyone around you like a family member because we're all in this together. And until next week, y'all, wherever you can find them, enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.